The No Sweat Podcast with Andrew O'Neill. This is the No Sweat Podcast. I'm Andrew O'Neill, non-binary weirdo comedian and gadabout. Last week marked the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, the deadliest industrial accident in the history of the garment trade. Over the course of last weekend, No Sweat worked as part of the Rana Plaza Solidarity Collective to commemorate this anniversary with demonstrations, an exhibition, film screenings, a panel discussion and a memorial. We'll be hearing from Maisha in a bit. She spoke eloquently at the event, but meanwhile, Nav... Hi. ...has been travelling. Where have you been? So I went to India and Bangladesh and I met um, some unions and some organisations that are part of the fight and on the ground of the fight for garment workers and... Yeah, we just went there to show solidarity with them and find out what's been happening, the current situation, um, and and just see people behind all of these acronyms, really. Sounds amazing. So who did you meet? What organisations? So during my trip uh, to Bangladesh, I was lucky enough to meet the Bangladesh Garment Industrial Workers Federation, the BGIWF, which is run by Babal and Kalpona Actor. I also got to visit the factory that No Sweat produces their t-shirts in and the BGIWF lead and run the trade union that represent the workers in that factory. All right. So it was a really eye-opening experience and uh, it was great to see the people behind the No Sweat t-shirts. Mm. So I also went to um, the Rana Plaza 10 Years On event in Dhaka which was organised by the Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity Group. Taslima Akhtar is in charge of that, and she's the amazing photographer that's taken photos of uh, the Rana Plaza collapse. And um, What was that like? So I was in the room with her, saw her, like... So they had the pictures, had people there, obviously. Um, it was really interesting. They had, like, a filmmaker there too. And um, then soon after, like, so they had different things. They had some illustrations, pictures. And then soon after they had a panel discussion, well, a panel thing where where a mother of a worker was standing up and talking. Um, a worker themselves was standing up and talking about the experience. And um, <clears throat> Tazima Actor was also there, also like just being a shoulder for them. Obviously, I couldn't really understand anything, but I had my friends who who were who were translating what they could. But to be honest, they didn't really need to translate because I could just see it on their faces and I uh, could hear through their voices what like the kind of pain that they were going through. Yeah, it was it was yeah it was it was very touching, especially like not being able to like understand, but 
just seeing them and seeing that emotion and but seeing like the anger in them as well as the sadness just yeah I also went to the Rana Plaza Memorial site that was kind of underwhelming it so you've got the big statue in place in front of where the factory used to be um and it's just it's a shame really because so many lives were lost such a big tragedy tragedy has occurred and life is just going on as as usual and people just walking past it and you've got cars parked near it and it's just there's there's a quite an airy there was quite an airy feel when going past it myself yeah so how did it feel coming back to the UK so uh yeah the the trip was really interesting a big eye opener um and it was quite humbling because I felt like really blessed to be able to meet these people um I came back from from my trip on the Rana Plaza anniversary and coming back I was given like a sheet because I was met unfortunately I came late but I was meant to come when we had the memorial I was meant to read some accounts and on on the train back um from London Heathrow I was reading them and I just bored I I cried (laughs) um I cried because I was like shit like I've seen it I've I've been there and I, I it hadn't soaked up until I actually was on the train up and it just hurt just finally making that final uh, connection and coming back on the anniversary to realise all of my trip was for this, in a way. It, it's for the people that had suffered. Um, yeah, it was quite emotional. Last weekend, there were events all around the world commemorating the Rana Plaza collapse, remembering those who were killed and injured. It also served as a motivation to continue to fight for fundamental changes to prevent anything like it happening again, and to increase awareness of the ongoing struggles for workers' rights and for freedom of assembly. Working as part of a coalition of campaign groups and activists in the UK, we held a memorial at Altab Ali Park in Whitechapel. The park itself is a memorial to Altab Ali, a Bangladeshi garment worker who was murdered in Whitechapel. There were speakers from No Sweat, including Maisha, who blogs under the name Oh So Ethical. There was Labour behind the label, Nijor Manush, and Absana Begum, the MP for Poplar and Limehouse. People read testimony from families of the dead and people involved in the collapse on the day. In the pouring rain, we gathered with other groups, activists and supporters and laid a wreath in front of a banner with all the names we have of those who died and a beautiful curtain of red clay hearts, one for each worker killed in the collapse. Then we dashed to Toynbee Hall and held a panel in front of a packed room. It was really motivating to see so many people from different walks of life and different political stripes gathering in one cause. Here's the panel discussion. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, My name's Andrew O'Neill. I'm the uh, co-host of the No Sweat podcast uh, and a a, a clown for a living. Um, Thank you all for coming out. Um, It's an inspiringly full room. Uh, So we're going to have a panel. Then we're going to have some uh, film screenings. We'll do a Q&A. So if you have any questions, any thoughts occur to you, you know, we'll, you'll have a, a chance to ask our panel any questions you have. Uh, and we'll begin. So um, 
We have uh, Maisha, who is uh, one of my co-hosts on the No Sweat Co- podcast, also uh, an activist, a blogger, and generally inspiring human being. And we have Avzal Rahman, uh, who is a, uh, the TUC policy officer um, and uh, someone who gets his hands dirty uh, in, the, uh, in, this, uh, in this world. So um, we'll kick off with Maisha. Um, it was give, just put your hand up if you if you weren't uh, with us over in the park. Just so we got an, an idea. Okay, so we will be covering some of the same ground, but that's worth it because you guys are here. So, Maisha, can you tell us um, what happened ten years ago at Rana Plaza? Yeah. So April twenty twenty three, there was um, so Rana Plaza was an eight story building that housed several businesses, including banks, shops, and garment factories. And so in April, um, a lot of the workers noticed that there were cracks in the building. And so as a result, a lot of the businesses closed down. So the banks closed down, the shops closed down, but the only businesses that stayed open were the garment factories. They had to continue working, continue business as usual. And so the next day, the workers, the garment workers who were forced to go in, they were protesting outside. They were telling the factory owners they, the factory owners they don't want to go in. Um, they were fearful of their lives, but again, they were forced to go in and they were threatened with non-payment of wages and they had no choice but to go in. And then several hours later, the whole building collapsed in about 90 seconds and it's still one of the deadliest garment factory disasters in history. Um, 1,138 people were recorded as dying and thousands injured, hundreds injured, but as we said in the um, park, the number is possibly higher thanks to the work of unions and organizers who have been communicating workers and people on the ground to find out if where the missing people are. And so it's possible that 1,175 people have died. And so, yeah, it was largely the result of the fact that the factory owner, he had been illegally adding stories onto the building to the point where it was just too heavy to manage the building structure couldn't handle the machinery at the top and it essentially collapsed and we he's basically been put on bail which is really wild um and that's that's actually recent news so yeah that's and so the the building wasn't licensed to be a factory it was it had factories in it so yeah. but it was the fact that he kept adding more stories on that weren't that was illegal like they're right. continuous adding more stories to a structure that just doesn't can't handle that and I think what we're seeing is in Bangladesh recently we've seen factory we've seen a lot of fires and another p- collapse in Pakistan so yeah these things are ongoing so as a result of um, the impact of this disaster uh, there was a thing called the Bangladesh Accord um, so tell us now it's 10 years on uh, from that can you tell us what that was and basically whether that's worked whether we've seen improvement yeah so this was actually so people think the Accord began at the process of it began after Rana Plaza but it was actually a process happening prior to Rana Plaza and so unions um, which and labor rights organizations were trying to get brands on board to an agreement to for factory health and safety but a lot of the brands were just like no we don't really want to do this or making excuses and then Tazreen factory fire happened in November in 2012 um, where lots of workers died and were trapped inside the fire again there was they still weren't moved to do anything and exactly six months later Rana Plaza happened and because of the global outcry because of the organizing of unions in Bangladesh because of the organizing of people around the world and the global outcry brands felt compelled and if anything just 
immensely pressured by society to sign up to this agreement, which was then formulated. So this is um, a legally binding agreement. So brands are legally bound to invest in health and safety in the factories that they supply from. And so this is sort of like an agreement with unions, uh, labor rights organizations, and brands. And so this has been running since then. There's been lots of sort of push from brands um, to kind of not sign or sign or to kind of support alternative initiatives. So there was also the alliance that was formed, which was um, a counter to the accord, which was started by Walmart and Gap, which was voluntary. So it's basically them trying to get out of signing so the, the agree accord. So these, these, these alternative arrangements and alternative things they're signing up to are uh, originated by the brands in a kind of ethical wash manoeuvre to kind of show they're doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like an extension of C corporate social responsibility, which is basically voluntary agreements that brands sign on to because they know that because it's voluntary, they have no one to hold, be, to hold them accountable for. So this was a game changer in that the brands were legally being held accountable for the first time. Um, and so this has been going on for uh, 10 years. We've seen a lot of improvement in factory health and safety in Bangladeshi factories. I would argue that that's probably where its limitations are. We'll probably speak about that later in terms of what's happened in the long term. But because it's so focused on structural safety, I'd argue that there's a lot more that needs to be done now. Like we've done the accord, we need to go on something bigger and better that actually addresses the systemic issues that are causing health and safety issues. But generally, in terms of its function, it's done it's done great. And it's also been expanded to Pakistan. So there's now a Pakistan Accord. So that will work on... They're now mobilizing to get um, Pakistani brands... Sorry, brands sourced from Pakistan to sign on to that accord. Fantastic. So it, achie it achieved its objective, and now we have that to kind of build on top of. Um, yeah. So, you know, there is something positive that's come out of this that, you know, in terms of um, workers' rights and workers' um, health and safety. Um, so... You mentioned brands and, um, you know, the brands, the way that, that uh, capitalism is set up, uh, the brands that we buy on the high street um, distance themselves from uh, in their kind of supply chain uh, to the workers. So the, the workers that, you know, manufacture the clothes we're all wearing are not directly employed by the brands, they have found a way to, to kind of uh, distance themselves. Um, so, however, I think those of us old enough to remember the kind of campaigns of the 90s will know things like um, No Logo. Uh, brands are vulnerable to pressure because the brand is their reputation. And if we can associate things like sweatshop labor with a big brand, they have to do something about it because that's their model. So the question I have for you is, since the Rana Plaza collapse in these 10 years, is, has anything changed in the way that brands are conducting their business? Um, I, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted Next to say question. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the thing is, um, since Rana Plaza, there have been multiple sort of reports and studies coming out and... Again, I want to just purchasing practices, which is basically how brands engage with suppliers and how they do business with them. So it's a very sort of, I would argue, it's in a very abusive relationship where you have right. brands who will go to suppliers and say, we want this for this amount. And if you don't do this, we're going to go somewhere else. And while they do that, so they're basically driving down the costs for these suppliers and the suppliers know if they go, business is gone. In a sort of global perspective, you see if Bangladesh, if they don't offer cheap, cheap labor, business is gone and when you've got countries that are dependent on exports due to 
again, colonialism and neoliberal policies that were imposed on these countries. It's very, like, it's a very sort of structure that brands take advantage of. They, they make the most of it. They mass wealth profit, mass profits out of it. And so, we're seeing that system in itself is just a con it's just continued and expanding on purchasing practices. It's not the fact they keep driving down weight costs. It's also the fact that when they do after that, they will impose discounts after they've received the clothes. So they'll receive the clothes and say, we didn't like it. We're going to pay you less. Um, they'll also cut lead times and say, we need this in a week. Um, they will, they will also have punishment. So again, if they don't like things or they, they find a reason to lower the costs. So they basically find any way to reduce costs at any, regardless of the impact it has on wages and health and safety. So it's very wild when you have brands who, even brands who sign the accord or brands who have like a nice fancy sort of policy on human rights, who will say, yeah, we care about wages and it's the suppliers. And it's linked to what you said, it's outsourcing in that it's this whole thing they've, they've, that they profit from because they know that when they, so outsourcing is basically when brands will buy clothes, get clothes made in factories that they don't own. And that way they can say that they don't, they're not responsible for the fact, the wages and yeah. they're not responsible for health safety, which is wild because you are literally dictating the prices. You are literally dictating how much these factories have to invest in wages. And they know that, but instead they can fall on this whole sort of outsourcing facade. So yeah. there's been countless reports basically arguing that nothing's changed. Um, in fact, it's gotten worse. Um, and there was a report in 2018 by Mark Anna who found that while health and safety has indeed improved, lead times, wages, they've gotten worse. And I think right. a big example was COVID. Like, I don't know if anyone remembers the pay-up campaign in 2020 when um, brands basically, in response to the fact that their shops were shutting and they were losing profit, they then said, okay, we're just going to take it from the people who kind of, who we can take it from and who have low legal sort of support or network to get any sort of support from and it was the workers and so they basically cancelled orders without paying for them workers were like left to essentially to starve 80 percent in a study were, were hungry because of it um workers so that's 80 percent of garment workers in a survey yeah in internationally again yeah, internationally so it was a survey across five countries i'd say right. a worker rights consortium did the study and about 80 percent reported having to skip a meal because they were unable to afford living because the brands who are amassing wealth profit by the way they're making millions in covid as well they're still making profit and we're still seeing An increasing profit yeah record profits legit and in this with the economic crisis we have now we thought oh never again covid it's never going to happen again we saw the damage we saw the destruction that happened in terms of workers being hungry not able to support their kids but we're seeing it happen right now where brands are now cancelling orders reducing orders it's just ongoing and so yeah i would argue that it hasn't gotten better in fact covid has enabled it to get worse they've seen what they can get away with and right. they're continuing to and they've got no sort of there's no nothing stopping them essentially well sorry so no no apologies needed uh so um hello Afzal. hello um so um talking about there's nothing stopping them you're a trade unionist um what progress have you seen um from a trade union perspective in the last decade Great, thank you. Um, so I think that you know, a trade union perspective is rooted in the really key details of what happened, which is this was a preventable strategy. This was a preventable, prevent, preventable situation. Um, it was known about in advance. Workers knew about it. Workers knew they were unsafe. Um, yeah, and you know, there'd been structural engineers in, but you could there was visible cracks in the building. Workers knew it was unsafe. They didn't want to go to work, and. The factory owners, managers said to them, you know, they, 
they said to them, you will come to work or I will dock you a month's wages. And that pressure, that threat of destitution, you will starve. Come in to collect your poverty wages or you will starve. <laughs> um, uh, forced people into a situation where they were working, where they knew they were unsafe, they knew they didn't want to work, yeah. uh, but they could not decline the work and they could not say no. So if a union had been, and that's all to say, if a union had been present there, this would not have happened. Um, if a union had been, if there had been a strong uh, union um, presence there, you know, the workers would have uh, chosen some representatives from among them to represent them in conversations with management sure. uh, with the uh, power of we can decline work, we can remove yeah. ourselves from a dangerous situation behind them. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that um, would, have been, would have been the situation. Now, the... I'm, I, and I'm glad Maisha talked a little bit about the wider conditions because pay um, and you know uh, other other entitlements that workers seek um, pay for time off, pay for maternity, pay for sickness, all of these sorts of things uh, are and and security all make up the infrastructure of what it's like to be a worker in these industries. Um, the health and safety situation did improve as a result of the accord. Uh, but Bangladesh is not, not a particularly safe place to work. The garment industry is still uh, an industry in which people die as a result of preventable uh, health and safety and other issues at work. Right. Um, and that and that continues to be a problem. And part of that problem, unfortunately, is massive trade union suppression um, politically and uh, through employers um, uh, on a on a really on a really big scale. Um, so, because I was going to ask why why wasn't there union uh, presence in in this factory ten years yeah. ago? Yeah, so the situation in Bangladesh and this hasn't improved. If anything, it's getting worse. Um, is one where employers intimidate um, trade unionists, uh, harassment, violence, beatings, sackings, yeah. um, using uh, whatever tricks they can against workers. And, you know, these workers don't have uh, uh, an alternative that they can turn to. They are at the behest of that sort of intimidation. Um, but the, and, 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 and the, and, you know, the employers and the factory owners are all, are all involved in that. They know it's in their interest to suppress uh, trade union activity and make it really difficult for that to happen. That harassment, um, the legal framework and the law, the law in um, Bangladesh doesn't prevent that uh, trade union breaking and that trade union harassment and that worker victimization from happening. Um, and in fact, while we're talking about the state in Bangladesh, the level of police brutality uh, when trade unions organize, when the state gets involved, it's not just employers. So we're talking, you know, beatings and, uh, you know, tear gas, rubber bullets, um, live ammunition at some protests has been used and people have been uh, injured and killed as a result uh, to break up protests outside in workplaces, to break up strikes, to police uh, break up union meetings. Right. So right at the source, uh, there is a real suppression there. So there is uh, a direct line between like state factory owners, employers, all of them are complicit uh, in a, in a system um which prevents trade union organizing, which prevents trade unionists uh, achieving the health and safety that they would achieve 
yeah. uh, if they had a union presence there and all of the other conditions. So I'm interested in, in I don't know, this may be a diversion, but um, why is the state in Bangladesh so interested in preventing trade union organization? Why is it in there? And is that simply because they want to attract international, you know, trade? Is that, is that basically all it comes down to? So the, the real uh, powerful uh, forces in this uh, are the other Western companies right. uh, that have the capital and the purchasing power uh, to uh, determine whether the, you know, whether the, so Bangladesh has developed a sort of export-led uh, garment-focused uh, like growth model, which has sort of been imposed right, on right. it by Western governments in cahoots with Western uh, brands and Western international organizations. Is debt a factor in this? Debt is, de debt? Yeah, debt, debt is a factor in this. Right. Um, they're like, uh, the, the money that you are able to get within, you know, to come into your country, uh, is contingent on, um, you're, you're keeping the, these like brands happy and, yeah, and right. happy and w willing to invest in your comp, in your, in your country. And the growth has been led by that. And so there's a lot of complicated factors. And I don't particularly want to assign motives to why the state is right, right. doing any of this, but the economic power held by, uh, brands that are, um, that are, you know, they're saying that they're, they're turning to the bank, they're turning to Bangladesh, uh, and saying, um, give us the cheapest you can give us or we'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And that, and, you know, we won't pay you a lot, but also, uh, we, you know, we're not going to take accountability for what happens in, um, in, in your workplaces either. Yeah. And that creates that, uh, that, I guess, that impetus for, for that uh, to continue. Yeah, yeah. I'd argue that brands are essentially like agents of neocolonialism. Like right. they continue to extract wealth via, so it's not essentially the UK, it's not the US, it's these, brands and these corporations that know what they're doing they're extracting wealth and amassing wealth profit and we are benefiting benefiting through it from it yeah. um so yeah and also similar to what um Afsal was saying there's a reason why brands go to countries where there's suppression of trade unions and it's because they know that if they if there's any existence of trade a trade union movement then that's their like cheap labor gone so yeah, it, it's a, it's a very like as i said it's a there's a power there's a power structure here so we can't solely blame things on bangladesh there's mm -hmm. like a bigger picture here happening we have colonial history we have um the context from like from when the cotton industry was like, the most successful successful in the world and it got broken down by the british empire and then post um, post colonialism like there's a huge history here that has resulted in what's happening here the continuation of that is the biggest problem we have right so Resistance is happening. Yeah. Resistance is what we're here to, you know, apart from commemorating and remembering and understanding what happened, um, we want you to go away with a feeling that you can do something and that things are being done. So why is resistance so important? What are people doing? Yeah, so we have the theme of this year for us really was Rana Plaza and the resistance because we feel like a lot of the time we see Rana Plaza and it's sad, we see sad people, we see sad faces, we see the deaths and that is all valid. We should be looking at what the devastation that brands have caused but what is often hidden is the resistance that not only followed but existed prior to that and what led to a lot of what we're seeing today. So um, for example, Bangladesh, I would tell you like every other week there's a wildcat strike, there's like mass strikes, there's road closures, there's factory sort of 
factories that close down to show solidarity with other factories. Like there's movement, there's movement happening on the ground and workers win wages that way. And this has been happening on a regular basis, but it's something that's not just, it's just not as like appealing to like the media and not particularly yeah, something yeah. you want to cover because wow, well, who wants to know about workers organizing, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, so that's, we really wanted to highlight that part of Bangladesh's history, the garment industry as well. And we saw a lot of that during, again, I'll mention the pandemics. I feel like that might be quite familiar. We saw a lot of, um, and similar to the trade union suppression, when, in fact, when the brand started cancelling orders, brand factories started, um, the first people they were dismissed because of these council orders were the trade unionists. And the, they were clearly being targeted in this suppression again of like, let's, let's get rid of them first. And that led to mass protests. Um, one example I can think of was in India, which was a H&M supplier, Largely, mostly, most of the orders were H&M. H&M at that time, while they had told us they were cancelling orders, this factory particularly decided to close down. Women literally sat outside for like days on end, like just protesting on the streets, and um, and then they end up get, they end up getting what they wanted, and they yeah. won. And so we really wanted to amplify examples like this as hope and the future because. Another thing I'll say is that as Western like activists, activists in the north. A lot of the time we frame the solution around us, like what can we do to help, what can we buy, what can we purchase and boycotts and things like that. And it's, but the real, I feel like long term, and I think I've sort of talked about this as well, like we really need to focus on ground up solutions because that's been most effective. And again, right with the, with um, even Rana Plaza as well, it was worker organizing on the ground. It was their movement on the ground that, and then their connection to international allies and then our echoing that led to like big changes and it started from the bottom. But then when these are framed in the media, it's often like, oh, look at these like activists in the North who like do this amazing stuff. And, and these it's victims. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. workers as victims as opposed yeah. to people with agency who are yeah. actually doing stuff about and it. And so beyond it being offensive, it's more, it can be debilitating because again, when we frame solutions around ourselves, so I mentioned boycotts. This is something that unions actively speak out against but we've kind of been very I feel like that's been kind of like a at the forefront conversations when I see Instagram posts it's like oh I don't buy here I buy from there or like that's the first conversation that happens I mean obviously consumption is an issue but when it becomes a forefront of our conversations it clearly shows that we are not prioritizing what unions and workers want which is active like solidarity Mm -hmm. and we've seen again like to bring hope to this we've seen the impact of that during the pandemic brands u-turn like these are billion dollar corporations that we convinced to go back on their decision to cancel orders and things like that really show you the power of people and the importance of solidarity which is why we really wanted to highlight resistance for this um, anniversary um afsal Um, well, to, to both of you, really, um, uh, f- freedom of association is, is a huge, huge point here, um, and and kind of partly to do with that. I just want to know if there's anything you, you want to say. But people sat in this room, you know, we, we want you to go home thinking that you're part of a movement because you are just by being here. And there are things we can do. So, from both of you, uh, what are the priorities, and what can people do to help? What can these beautiful people here do to help? Yes. Apart from listening to our podcast, which is really important. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, what Maisha says about the uh, worker-led, uh, ground-up um, organizing and struggle is really important for understanding how uh, we have managed to push back and, uh, you know, gain some ground um, 
uh, on the ground in the garment industry in Bangladesh now. For us here, I just want to touch a little bit on, you know, how this links to some of the stuff that happens in the UK a bit. And then there's, a, there, you know, there's room for us to organize uh, in, in that sense. Uh, and that's probably, you know, where, where we can win, um, where, where we can win a lot of that. So um, the outsourcing, long supply chains and all of those models, that sort of separation and like stratification and segregation and sectionalism that, that, that it inspires within workforces is a deliberate strategy um, of right. employers uh, and you will you will notice and see that in your own um, workplaces when when you know what happens when workers from the global south come uh, to the shores of Europe to work here they are seen as an easy target for outsourcing two-tier workforces racialized segregation uh, occupationally um, and you know they you know they, they work for different companies in the same uh, despite working within the same workforce, they're deliberately uh, hived off on worse terms and conditions, no dignity. And, um, you know, we, we create this sort of hierarchy and subclass of workers to exploit. Um, so the only, uh, and that, you know, that the class of people that are responsible uh, for the contracting and supply chains and models are the people that work at the tops of western companies that employ people in this room and that employ at the end of their supply chains people in garment industry in bangladesh yeah they're the same people and they would do the same to us as they do to the people in bangladesh if they could get away with it so what we need to do is challenge that model we challenge it here because this is where we are um, and we join up in solidarity with bangladeshi workers who are challenging it in bangladesh um, and I think that's probably the most important thing to do. And, and, to, and to give a little bit more of an uplifting uh, message on some of that. So within um, recently, there was a strike at the Barts Hospital Trust. They run five hospitals. Right. Um, Unite and Unison um, workers managed to get 1,800 sort of porters, cleaners, uh, security um, insourced after a, after a strike um, there. So they have come out of their two-tier workforce. They're mostly, mostly racialized black, brown um, workers that, you know, had worse sick pay, had worse holiday pay, had worse, uh, terms and conditions, had increased precarity, were not treated the same as other employers. They're yeah. now employed by the NHS on the NHS, um, NHS band. And that's, you know, a struggle that was done, uh, across, uh, workers in the Barts Trust, insourced and outsourced, standing together. And that is, I think, emblematic of the kind of solidarity that we have to go and go away and, uh, try and build. We can organize, uh, in that way. And there's other examples. Um, we've got to, we've other, got to, we've yeah. got to keep it tight because yeah, yeah. we've got a lot to get through. So, um, Maisha, what else can people do? Yeah, I just want to echo what Afzal said. I'm grateful he's on this panel with us because I think it's drawing those parallels. So this isn't something I say to Bangladesh and the garment industry. This is a system, a systematic issue, and we're seeing it in the UK. So I think it's supporting your trade unions here as well as in the Global South, um, engaging in these movements, seeing how you can act. So whether it's... Um, joining a social media campaign or whether it's like joining a protest I think these little things all count mm -hmm. um, and I think it's yeah I mean following organizations and groups that are very much centered in supporting grassroots organizations and just reframing how you um, how you view the global south and organizing and the garment industry and garment workers who are more than just kind of, again, like statistics, it's more than just 1,138. They were all lives. They were yeah. all people. And there are 
millions of people behind that who are organizing for a better world and it's not just us here with our banners and placards it's people on the ground who are just existing and continuing to resist as well fabulous thank you both so much uh, we could talk all day about this and we will talk another time in more depth and more detail but thank you to uh, our panelists in this section Afterwards, there were screenings of two films, an animated short called Primate, produced in association with No Sweat by a group of upcoming young animators, and Rana Plaza 10 Years On, a documentary by the Rainbow Collective, which is a follow-up to their award-winning documentary, Tears in the Fabric. It's available on YouTube, and it's well worth a watch. All right. Thank you everyone for joining us uh, for the screening of our, our documentary, Rana Plaza, 10 years on. Uh, me and Richard, who run the Rainbow Collective, we've been making documentaries about uh, garment workers from about 2007, and our business started in 2005, so our, our careers have been intertwined with the workers' rights movement in Bangladesh. Uh, this is a documentary we made to really show what's been going on in the last 10 years and really tell the story of the survivors of Rana Plaza. We've previously made documentaries about the bereaved. We've previously made documentaries looking at the movement and looking at the, the Tazreen fire and looking at Rana Plaza. But this is something we wanted to make to see what's been going on now because there's a lot of misconception in places like Bangladesh where a lot of people uh, seem to think that the, uh, the Rana Plaza workers are really wealthy. They've done really well from all of this compensation. And we really wanted to talk about this type of stuff and, and actually look at what happened with that compensation and what's happened with the injured workers. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, why we've made this film. Oh, can I just quickly say? Quickly, quickly want to say we're really privileged, me and Richard, that we have a great team uh, in Bangladesh, and we have really great people here who work with us. In Bangladesh, we have an a, a entirely Bengali uh, filmmaking team called the Cinema Gang, who worked with us on this project. This is the third documentary they've done with us, which is about garment workers. And, you know, we're just really happy that we've got a, a, a group of young filmmakers over there, and we're able to do this co-collaboration. Just, yeah, it's just a... Oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, just in terms of like what people are expecting, we've made a lot of films, like Hanan said, about, about the struggle and about the movement. And a lot of the time, the work we do with groups like Campaign Against the Arms Trade is about showing like the positive work. It's inspiring. It shows us what's working with the campaigns. Uh, this, this ain't that. So like, this is like, it's a film that's, it's, it's, it's serious. It's telling, you guys and it's telling us as filmmakers it's telling you guys as campaigners and as consumers what they want you to know when they're going through what they're going through uh right now at this time of year so uh it's 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 not the usual kind of stuff but it's uh and it's it's got some hard truths i think for everyone to to listen to and the final thing to mention with it is it's kind of it's it's part of what's going to be a film that's looking at kind of Rana Plaza 10 years later. There's going to kind of go back to the bereaved and to the missing as well. Uh, but this is just about the survivors and what they want us all to know. Thank you. Quickly, just want to introduce Kieran, who's going to be showing his uh, a short animation before the film. Um, hello, everyone. Hey. Uh, 
shout out to our team. Hey. <laughs> um, yeah, our film name Primate, just a short animation. Um, you know, honored to be working with Jay from No Sweat, uh, and as well as Tazleem Acker. Um, yeah, I mean, similar sentiment, but obviously, you know, promoting that solidarity uh, through the process of animation, and then mm. yeah. yeah. We haven't completely finished it just yet, but uh, yeah, no, we're honoured to contribute our medium to try and show some of the relationships that that can show, like the what's yeah, been discussed the today, yeah, 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 like the cause that this is, and yeah, honoured to try and show that and draw some of the parallels in the in our imagery to show these meanings and try and yeah, just honoured to share and. Yeah. Get it out there, raise awareness. Exactly. I mean, yeah, as you'll see, it's in, um, it's in black and white at the moment, uh, and it will be completed by the end of, yeah. end of next May, month. Yeah, May. So, yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's useful to realise we're just a small part of a much bigger movement. The cause of workers' rights, fair pay, safe working conditions, free association and basically dignity in work is a worldwide struggle. And we at No Sweat are frequently humbled by those fighting on the ground and we work in solidarity with them. Seeing seeing the, the memorial with the hearts, which was beautiful. Like That's right. I, I helped with the idea of it and to see it in person and see all the hard work that everyone did whilst I was away. It's just like, wow. This, this is why we, we work in a freaking team. Like, it was stunning. It was genuinely stunning. And I was so proud. And then going to um, the Toy and Bee Hall event as well. And just just seeing the panellists, I was just like, I just felt so good. I felt, I felt, my heart was like filled with love. Because I was like, shit, like, this is my family. Like, you can choose your family. And I choose that, like, all of these activists, that were together on the Rana Plaza event and, and those that we missed, obviously, they are my family. And it was just so lovely. And it felt amazing to, to see to see such like effort go into it. Yeah, it was beautiful. This is the No Sweat Podcast. Thank you to all who were involved in the event, the staff at Toynbee Hall, the sound techs and the volunteers, and everyone who left the house on a rainy day to stand in solidarity with the people who are fighting for their rights. <laughs>